It's a joy to be with you all today. Uh, thank you so much for the uh, opportunity and the invitation, Matt, to, uh, to come. I do bring you greetings from Christ's covenant. Uh, we are grateful for you, grateful for your association. We pray for you and pray for your ministers and those who serve you in the church and pray for you. We thank you for your prayers for the Linhart family. Um, Jennifer will, we believe, soon go home to see the Lord. She is on hospice. Uh, she is not really able to eat. And uh, so she is decreasing uh, in her body, but increasing in her soul. And we thank you. Let's pray as we come to God. <clears throat> Our gracious and Merciful God, you who are indeed full of mercy, that mercy that has caused us to be born again to a living hope, how we do thank you. We thank you for the privilege that is ours to be able to call you Father, to see Jesus as our elder brother, to have your very spirit dwelling within us. We ask God your help as we come to your word this day. We ask your divine assistance. Would you send forth your spirit? Would he be to us the spirit of truth? And would he take your word? And would he press it to our hearts? Would he use it to instruct our minds? Would he use it to inflame our hearts? to shape our souls so that we might be men and women who indeed love you with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength and are enabled to love our neighbor as ourselves. We do ask, O oh God, that you would help us in the fulfilling of all of your commands by your great gospel work in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his life, his death, His resurrection, that he who has life in himself has given us life, life everlasting. Help us, O oh God. Help me, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, if you would, take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Titus. Excuse me, Peter, I don't even know where I am. <laughs> Titus is good, too. I didn't ask for that reading earlier today, but um, somebody put your service together, and uh, they were thinking. And uh, that reading from Titus we may refer to here in a little bit. First Peter chapter 1. This is bad, Stephen. I'm already crying, brother, and I just got started. And... Um, <laughs> Stephen and I have a commonality. We are we are in the association of the two crying elders. And so, you know, you've read about the two witnesses and different things. Just be the crying elders for the association or something. And so, 1 Peter chapter 1, we want to focus today in verses 3 through 5. Before I get there, though, and as you're kind of turning there and settling in just a little bit, Perhaps you, you've seen a study that was commissioned by Ligonier Ministries uh, in recent years. I think they do one every couple of years, and they kind of partner with a group called Lifeway Research to do these, and they survey uh, various uh, people, and uh, in their surveys, they, they typically look at uh, what are called evangelicals, right? They're not necessarily surveying uh, confessional Reformed Baptists or whatever, and uh, I would love to see a survey like that. I think I would love to see a survey like that. It might come out no better. I don't know. I certainly hope it would. But in their survey, when they're looking for an evangelical, they're looking for someone that they say has a high view of the Bible, 
that they believe the Bible to be their highest authority in life for what they believe. Um, an evangelical to them in this survey is an, a person who has personally uh, committed their life to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and seeks to share that message with their uh, friends, their associates. Uh, they believe that Jesus' death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty for sin. And they believe that only those who trust in Christ will be saved. With, with those things, we could say amen. I mean, we could affirm those kinds of things. And in that sense, we would fit within that evangelical type definition. They ask a variety of questions in these surveys relating to the person of God, the being of God, um, the Christian life, uh, moral, ethical issues in our culture and society like abortion or homosexuality or things such as that. They also, interestingly, for today, it was helpful to me, they touch on the person of the Holy Spirit. And we are going to be looking today, if you have not gathered yet, uh, maybe, we're going to be looking today in the service and later in Sunday school and Lord willing tonight as well at the person of the Holy Spirit. And specifically, we're going to be looking at the doctrine of regeneration this morning or sometimes what we refer to as the new birth. They ask two questions that were very helpful. One is this, the Holy Spirit is a force, but it's not a personal being. That's a statement, we'll make it a question. Do you believe the Holy Spirit is a force, or do you agree that the Holy Spirit is a force, but it's not a personal being? Not a personal being. Interestingly, um, close to 45% of professing evangelical people said we do not believe the Holy Spirit is a personal being. In other words, he's just a force or a power, so we get our theology more from Star Wars than we do from the Bible. Even though they're saying, in the original survey, they believe the Bible to be their highest authority in life for what they believe. Probably even more pertinent to our issue here is this other statement, the Holy Spirit gives a spiritual new birth or a new life before a person has faith in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that a person must be born again, as Jesus said to Nicodemus, not just to get into the kingdom, but to even see the kingdom? Hmm. 30%. 30% are either not sure or somewhat disagree, but 20% strongly disagree. In other words, that means 50% don't agree in the end result of the poll. 50%. 50% of Bible-believing evangelical Christians do not believe that the Holy Spirit must give new birth for a person to trust in Christ. Well, confusion as to the person of the Holy Spirit results in confusion regarding the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, the sermon today is not about the person of the Holy Spirit per se. We will be dealing with that later in Sunday school and this evening, looking at church history, considering the very person of the Spirit. But I want us to consider this morning the work of the Spirit, specifically the work of the Spirit in regeneration. And when you're dealing with a doctrinal sermon, you're really kind of uh, wondering, how do, you, how do you handle this? Because it'd be very easy to just kind of, you know, lay out John Gill, which I did in my study and I thought, we can just go through John Gill's points and we can have a really detailed outline of the doctrine of regeneration and the work of the Holy Spirit. And uh, that would probably not be the way to go. I really want, especially in a sermon on Lord's Day, to attach this to a particular text. So we're going to attach it to a text in 1 Peter chapter 1, in verses 3 to 5. Now, it's going to do a couple things for us, all right? One... Maybe on the negative side, we're gonna we're we're not gonna dig as deep into this as we could. 
if we were to lay it out like more of an academic study and you know we lay out all of our systematic theologies and we pull all the books off the shelf and we have a you know 40 pages of notes but you walk out of here with you know no real grasp in your heart mind and soul about what this is about because you've just kind of studied this right but on the positive side what this I hope will do is this will help us to see that the doctrine of regeneration is not just something that you know those theologians love to talk about right oh it's Pastor Matt there he is he just wants to be theological at the moment okay I'll check back in later on. I want you to know that this is not just a theological, glorious reality. It's, it's, a, it's a biblical reality. It, it is something that, that Peter, Peter wants the people reading his letter, the saints that are scattered throughout all this region of Galatia and Pontius and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, an area that we're going to kind of be in later on in Sunday school talking about Cappadocia in particular, a group of men known as the Cappadocian Fathers who were very helpful in the 4th century in formulating a good, sound doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Peter wants these dispersed believers, because we all live as angel, angels, angels, um, aliens and strangers in the world, he wants us to, to know that this doctrine is of principal importance. He opens his little epistle with it. He doesn't get three verses in before he's already talking about the Father having given us new birth. So with that in mind, let's, let's try to sharpen our pencil. Let's try to sharpen our sword, sharpen our minds around this doctrine. And let's see if this will be the kind of truth that will sanctify us and inflame our hearts in greater love for God and love for our fellow man. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Matt, do I need to shoot for about 11.15? Is that kind of what we're looking at? Is that close? Ish. Okay, all right. Well, Matt did say I was his pastor, and he knows that clocks don't matter a lot but I want to try to be good today. All right. Well, in this text, I want us to observe five things regarding the doctrine of regeneration. And then I want to draw from those five things, five points of, I would just call them maybe encouragement. You can call them application, but they're really more just points of encouragement. Five things I want to draw from this about the nature of the new birth. The source of the new birth, if you're a note taker, let me give you the five. The source of the new birth, the necessity of the new birth, the blessing of the new birth, the means of the new birth, and the permanence. The source, the necessity, the blessing, the means, and the permanence of the new birth. Now, each one of these is uh, simply... Uh, connected to a particular portion of this text. And let's just begin by looking at the source of the new birth. Like I said a moment ago, um, Peter doesn't get very far into this particular text before he's laying out for us uh, the, uh, the, the doctrine of the new birth. And he opens in verse 3 by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. Blessed be God who has caused us to be born again. Blessed be God. 
We see this kind of phraseology a few times in the scripture, especially in the Pauline corpus. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, just to look over there with me, I would encourage you to have your Bibles open and your fingers flexible. We're going we're gonna to look at several verses today. In 2 Corinthians in chapter 1, Paul doesn't get very far into his epistle to the church in Corinth before he says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And then that wonderful passage that you're probably very familiar with in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, in the heavenly places. In other words, if we just take those three appearances of this phrase, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have it here in 2 Corinthians, Ephesians chapter 1, and 1 Peter chapter 1, and it seems that they all revolve around the doctrine of redemption. In other words, when the writers of Scripture begin to speak about the doctrine of redemption, it is not long before they're what? They're giving voice to praise and to worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, he opens with that phrase, Blessed be the God and Father, because he's going to, he's going to lay out in verses 3 to 14 the very plan of redemption that the Father has chosen us, the Son has redeemed us, the Spirit has sealed us and guaranteed us for that day of redemption. And when he thinks about the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in redemption, he says what? Blessed, blessed be God. And then he comes in 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 3, the one that is our text for today, and he is blessing God for the very application of that plan in your life and in mine by giving you new birth. The Father has chosen, the Son has redeemed, the Spirit has, has sealed us, and this all happens and it becomes a reality and an actuality in your life when the Spirit comes and takes you who were dead and makes you alive. You understand that even if God had planned an eternity past and Jesus had died on the cross, it still has to be what? It still has to be made an actual reality in your life. Well, we'll get to that a little more here in a moment. But then our third text in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, where Paul kind of explodes with blessed be the God and Father again. Why? Because he's the God of all comfort, and he's given us comfort that we might come and comfort other people. It's the very sharing of that redemptive life and that redemptive experience in which we grow together in the church. Wherever the apostles are considering this work of redemption, they just seem to burst forth with blessing the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting, even Zechariah, who was not a prophet, uh, there in Luke chapter 1, when he contemplates the, the coming of John the Baptist and the coming of Jesus, what does he do in Luke chapter 1, verse 68? He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel when he thinks about redemption. Hmm. Well, God, it says in 1 Peter chapter 1, has caused us to be born again. And here in 1 Peter chapter 1, it attributes the new birth, interestingly, to God the Father. Usually, we think of the new birth as connected with God the Holy Spirit. And this would not be incorrect. In fact, uh, there are places in the scripture where this idea of the new birth being born again is attributed to the Father, places where it's attributed to the Son, places where it's attributed to the Spirit. It says in uh, James chapter 1, in verse 18, that God of his own will, of his own intention, of his own making, he brought us forth by the word of truth. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, it says that we were born not of a little man, not of flesh, but born what? Born of God. The will of God gave you birth. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 29, it speaks of the Lord Jesus, and it says that we have been begotten of him, or born of him. 
and the one that we usually associate the idea of the new birth with is that of the Holy Spirit. And the touchstone text for that is in John chapter 3, where Jesus talks to Nicodemus and says, you must be what? You must be born again. Well, we could go on with that, but we need to press ahead in our look at this text. Let's consider back in 1 Peter chapter 1 again, not just the source of this new birth. It comes from our triune God. It comes specifically in our text from the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this particular new birth is absolutely necessary. Look what it says in the text. It's rather, it's rather subtle. It's almost kind of behind the text. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. Us. Who are us? Who are we? Who are you? He has caused those who were, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, dead in their trespasses and sins to be made what? Alive together with Christ. Nicodemus, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you cannot see the kingdom. You cannot enter the kingdom. And water here is just another reference, basically, for the Spirit and the work of the Spirit. We can think, for example, of Ezekiel 36, the prophetic text right before Ezekiel 37, which is the big chapter about the bones, right? In Ezekiel 36, he says, and somewhere around verses 24 to 27, that I'm going to come one day, I'm going to sprinkle clean water upon you. And I'm going to give you my spirit, unless I'm born of water and the spirit. And the passage we read earlier, so good, Titus chapter 3. The washing and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is not a text about baptismal regeneration. Baptism certainly gives us a, a symbolic representation of this idea of washing, of death with Christ, of resurrection. But there is no power in water. It is a means of grace. That God uses, it is a blessing to his saints, but it is not that which gives them new birth. We baptize, to borrow from our brother Fred Malone's book title, we baptize what? Disciples alone. We baptize believing, we're praying, they are, we can't see their hearts, but we are assuming a sense of regeneration. We hear the profession of faith, we see the transformation of life, we're hoping in the Lord that these are regenerate individuals. Well, that's the, that's the second point. Let's look back in 1 Peter chapter 1 again. There's so much to say, and I'm trying not to jump ahead to my encouragements, but I want to kind of get through the passage. We've seen the source of the new book, birth, it is the triune God, specifically the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's necessity because without it, you couldn't see the kingdom, you couldn't enter the kingdom, you would not be alive, you would be dead. The blessing. Notice the blessing of the kingdom. Blessed be the God and Father of the blessing of the new birth. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. This is what he gives you in the new birth. He, he grants you, he blesses you with a living hope. It doesn't bless you with a better life. It doesn't bless you necessarily with happiness and peace and joy in the world, not as the world would give. It doesn't bless you with a better job, a better education, a better car. It's amazing how easily attached we get to these kinds of things in the world, isn't it? When things are going well for us financially, educationally, they're going well with our kids, we think the Lord's doing what? The Lord's blessing me. He's blessing me. Brothers and sisters, the blessing of God is the gift of a living hope that in truth supersedes everything in this world. Yes, God cares for us and God provides for us and he gives us in the kingdom of God, he gives us more fathers and more mothers and more brothers and more sisters. He gives us more family than we ever knew what to do with. You thought you had a hard time with the few family that you have and when you go to a Christian, they're all your family. It just like grows. I got family in Fort Worth. I got family in Houston. I got family in a couple of churches in Houston. I got family all over the country. I got family I don't even know. And by extension, we have all the brothers and sisters in the world. They're all my family. 
They supersede this world because we will live forever and we have a living hope. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13, he says that prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think about what he's saying there. He says, fix your hope completely on the revelation of Christ. We have an amazing way, don't we, of compartmentalizing our lives. We have a little bit of hope here. I got a little bit of hope in my family. I got a little bit of hope in the bank. I got a little bit of hope in my truck. Not a lot. Blew an engine about a year and a half ago, but it's a new engine, so I'm more hopeful now. I got a little bit of hope in my friends, a little bit of hope in me, maybe. Oh, and then, oh, it's Sunday. I got a little bit of hope in Jesus. Fix your hope, what? Completely on the grace to be revealed to you at the coming of Christ. This has a hope, the scripture says over and over, that will not disappoint. It is a hope that will not put to shame. In fact, Paul is so sure about your hope that he says in Romans chapter 5 that we boast in our hope. It's a word that means to exalt and to rejoice. source of the new birth is our triune God. Its necessity is needed because of our condition. Its blessing goes beyond the hopes of this world into the one to come. Consider its means. Look what it says again back in 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Christ, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, has been raised as a kind of first fruits. The first fruits to kind of show what the harvest is going to be like, to guarantee a, a future harvest, a future hopeful harvest, and that is guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 3, in verse 21, we read this, corresponding to that baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter, again, is grounding our hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that that is the means by which we have salvation itself. Our own confession, interestingly, in chapter 13, in the uh, section on sanctification, makes this comment. It says in paragraph 1 that they who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and new spirit created in them, and that's pointing to the idea of the doctrine of regeneration. It says this, through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. You and I are regenerated. You and I are given a new heart, a new spirit, through the virtue, through the power, through the working of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, the text we just read, that this comes to us through the resurrection of Jesus. Peter is assuming there the presence of the death of Jesus. When he says the resurrection, there's the assumption Jesus died first before he was raised. It goes on to say in chapter 13 of our confession that those who are regenerated through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection are also farther sanctified, really and personally, through the same virtue, through the same virtue of the death and resurrection of Christ, through the gospel work of Christ, I am both regenerated and further sanctified, made to be 
like Christ. And it goes on to say this happens by the means of his word and his spirit. Through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, we have been born again, given a new heart, given a new mind, created in us by God. And here, as our own brother, Dr. Renahan says, the spirit applies the benefits purchased by Christ. Again, we stress the fact that had those benefits been purchased, hypothetically, but not applied to you, they would not affect you in that regard. Hence the need for what? The preaching of the gospel, calling of sinners to repent, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, depending on the Lord to send his spirit to awaken dead hearts. We need the benefits of Christ's purchase work to be given to us all. There are similar themes found, for example, in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, this text we've alluded to before about being dead in trespasses and sins. Listen to what it says in verses 4 to 6. God being rich in mercy. This is exactly what Peter says. Uh, because of his mercy, he's moved. Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, God here highlighted, is rich in mercy, great in love. While we were dead, he made us alive. He gave us a new birth. He raised us up with Christ, again, pointing to Christ's death and his resurrection. One final thing to mention about the new birth back in Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, is its permanence. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What would Peter have had to say to have communicated to you that the hope that you have of everlasting life and the hope that you're granted in this new birth, what else could he possibly have said here to stress its permanence? It will, it will, it will never fade away. It will never be defiled. It will never perish. I mean, of nothing, of nothing in this world could you ever say such a thing. This is why I said earlier that we need to fix our hope completely on the grace to be revealed to us. Why? Because fixing your hope on anything else in this world is fixing your hope on something that is perishable, defiled, and fading. But here he says, if that weren't enough, it's reserved. You have a a complete reservation. And if that weren't enough, he would say that you are being what? Protected by the very power of the God who gave you birth. This new birth is not something that will ever be taken away. You can't be unborn. <laughs> you can die physically, but you can't be unborn. Job might wish that he had never been born. And maybe you've had some days that you wished you'd never been born, but, well, that only works in Disney movies, wishing things. We live in reality, and you can't be unborn. Neither can you spiritually be unborn. The one to whom the Father gives life possesses life forever. Well, let me take a few moments here to just try to give from this some kind of encouragement. There are so many things that could be said, and I, I may have already bled over into these. But let me, let, me, let me do this by way of direction, okay? Blessed be the God and Father of our 
Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, when you think of your new birth, I would encourage you to look up. Now, I'm not asking you to look up like the football guy does when he scores a touchdown and, you know, he looks up in the air. Probably the first time he's done it all week long, I don't know, but he did it. Hasn't done it since the last touchdown, but he wants to make sure he's, you know, guaranteeing another touchdown that's going to come. And when I ask you, or I, I encourage you to look up, I'm, I'm speaking about in your own heart and your mind. We mentioned how Peter doesn't get too far into this text in thinking about the new birth that he is already engaged in the blessing and the worship and the praise of God. I don't know if you even got wind of what it was going to be today. Oh, that Dr. Jason Montgomery is going to come talk to us about the doctrine of regeneration. Whew, that should be good. Regeneration, that's a big word. No, he means the new birth. Oh, yeah, heard about that in John 3. You know, maybe your eyes rolled. Maybe you weren't too interested. Maybe you're sitting there like that now. My prayer is not. But the heart that has been transformed by grace will give evidence of that transformation in the worship of the triune God. Let me say that again. And don't miss it. Listen. The heart that has been transformed by grace will give evidence of that transformation in the worship of the triune God. If you're sitting there right now and you are not interested in the worship of the triune God, I'm not going to say you're lost because I can't say that of your soul. I can't see your heart. But I can give you the great exhortation and encouragement to say if there is no external desire for the worship of the triune God, it may be because your heart is still cold to the triune God. You are simply not interested because you're dead. That brings me to a second encouragement. We consider the necessity of the new birth because we're dead in trespasses and sins. So not only would I exhort you to look up, I would exhort you to look in. As you're kind of descending from looking up in the heavens, descend down to your own heart for a moment and consider the state of your own soul. And friends, listen, this, this, is, this is a pressing question for you whether you are here today and you're five years old, three years old, two, I mean, exhort your babies. <laughs> I don't know. No, I'm not a pedo Baptist. But exhort your babies. I mean, what are you waiting for? The mythical age of accountability that moves no matter what Baptist you talk to. Oh, it's 12. It's got to be 12. Man, I've seen a lot of sin in my house before they're ever 12. <coughs> I can remember my own sin before I was ever 12, my own rebellion. Whether you're here today and you're five or you're 85, it doesn't matter. I'll never forget the day when I was a young boy. And of course, in our growing up a Southern Baptist in a Baptist church, you know, we had the altar call, that kind of thing. And, and uh, this is not to disparage that or exhort you to it or whatever. We don't, we, we're, our practice is probably more like yours. But the fact that you need to deal with Christ has to happen, whether it's at an altar or wherever it's going to be. You have to deal with Christ. But I remember sitting there as a young boy, probably about 14, 15 years old, and my jaw hit the ground when a man and his wife went forward, and they were probably about 80 years old, and he had been a preacher for like 50 years. And she came to Christ that day. Blessed be God. 50 years she sat in a church, dead, trespasses and sins, and God awakened her heart to the gospel before she died. 
Friends, consider the state of your soul. I don't know how to, how to plead with you more. Did you listen to the words of the hymns we sung today? I didn't pick those either. We can sit there in church. I've been in church since I can't remember. And I'm sure that woman had been in church since she couldn't remember. And maybe you've been in church since you can't remember. Friend, consider the state of your soul. You only live one time. And the day is drawing near that you will not live in this world anymore. There is an absolute necessity of the new birth because if you are not born again, you will not see, much less enter the kingdom of God. And if you're sitting there right now and you are, you are, you are newborn and you are in and you're thinking, what's the next point? Because, you know, I'm, I'm good on this one. Then pray for the people who are around you because almost guaranteed in a room like this, there are people who are not. Press this to your heart and ask yourself sobering questions. Is my soul right with Christ? Do I, do I know this God? Does he know me? Do I have life in Christ? Do I have the forgiveness of my sins? Do I have the hope of everlasting life? Do I have a living hope? Or do I just have... Listen, do I just have a hope for a better tomorrow than today? Because if that's all your hope is, is just a tomorrow. It's not a living hope. That's not an eternal hope. Christ will grant us in the gospel a living, everlasting hope. But you said I've got to be born again. I, I can't give myself new birth. No, you cannot. But I'm telling you about the one who can give you new birth. So you plead with him. You plead with him. And some of you may be sitting here today saying, I've been pleading with him. I've been asking him to give me new life. I've been asking him to give me the forgiveness of sins. Well, then keep going. Keep doing that. Keep asking. Keep knocking. Keep seeking. And the one who asks, and the one who seeks, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. He who calls upon the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. The one who believes in him will not be disappointed. You say to me, I've been seeking, I've been knocking, I've been asking, I'm tired, it's not working. Where are you going to go now? There is only one door to knock on, only one kingdom to seek, only one being that can be asked. And that is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if you don't ask Him, there's no one else to ask. Do you not understand that? You can't stop asking until He opens. The woman sat there and beat on the door over and over and over until the guy finally got out of bed to come and let her in. And if that wicked, evil man in that parable would finally get up, I will say to you that a good and gracious and merciful God, if you will ask and you will seek and you will knock, he will open. Just don't stop asking, seeking, knocking. It's the only thing you can do. And do it till you die. Just like that old woman did. And finally one day... He opened a door and she has life and she's not dead today. She is, as Moody would have said, more alive than she's ever been. Friend, look up and bless God for the living hope that he gave you in the new birth and look within and see how, how much you need that new birth. And if you've already have it, then just rejoice and go back and look again and bless him some more. And think about the blessing that he gives. He gives us living hope. 
What is the hope? Hope is a hope and a trust in the promises of God. Go from looking up and looking into looking down, down on the ground where you stand, as the old hymn writer said, standing on the promises I cannot. Stand there. Stand there on all of his promises that the scripture says are yea and amen in Christ. No promise of God fails. No promise of God comes up short. And I don't have to wait for the millennium for all the promises to come true. They have already all been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And if I stand on Christ, that solid rock, I stand on all the promises of God. What do you stand on? You stand on your own ingenuity. You stand on your own skill. You stand on your own plans. What do you stand on? There's only one foundation that will never be moved, and that is Jesus Christ. You stand there and don't move. <laughs> As you look up and then you look within and look down and stand on those promises, I would encourage you to look back. Look back and see Christ. Yes, look back to the cross. Look back to the place where the second member of the triune Godhead in incarnate flesh was put to death for you as your substitute. He bore your sin he bore your punishment. He bore everything that you deserved. He died for the sins of his people. He died that sinners might go free. And yes, look back to the cross, that old rugged cross. But look somewhere else too. Look where Peter looked. Look to the resurrection. Because Paul says in Romans chapter 4, 25, that he was put to death for our sin, but he was raised for our justification. And in Romans 5, 1, therefore, having been justified, we have peace with God. And he's given us access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in our tribulations because tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance character. And character, hope, and hope does not disappoint because God has poured out his spirit upon us. Friends, look up to your Savior. Look into the condition of your own heart and plead with him for mercy. Look down to the promises of Christ upon which you stand and look back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb. And one last thing, look ahead. Look ahead because ahead is the hope of the revelation of the grace of God. And there's going to come a day when the Lord Jesus Christ will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and the angels and the saints, we all attend them. And there we are and we'll forever be with the Lord. Why? Because, because finally he has brought to the full sense of completion your hope, it's no longer hope, is it? Because it's realized. Hope is an unrealized expectation, but this is an unrealized expectation. It's based upon perfect and sure and immovable promises. We have something to look for, and that is the obtaining, the full possessing of our inheritance. And when we look at it, we'll look at it and it won't have aged a day. It won't have, it won't have any decay. It won't have any defilement. It won't be, it won't have faded. It won't have faded at all. You know, those things you pull out of your closet. Maybe it's an old wedding dress. I kept it for you, sweetie. You pulled it out, you know. Well, aside from about 60 moth holes, it's going to be great once we fix it. Trust me. Or you pull out those things that you saved up in the attic and because of heat, they now just crumble in your hands. Precious brother and sister, 
when the Lord Jesus Christ fulfills your hope and he returns, it will be with a treasure that is himself. I'm not waiting for gold. I'm not waiting for a cloud. I'm not waiting for a mansion. You know, when I was a little boy, I heard about the mansions and I got pretty excited. You know what I wanted to be in my mansion? My TV and my brown beanbag. That's what I wanted. TV and my beanbag. That was going to be for me heaven. Maybe you're waiting for a fishing boat. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you to wait for nothing but Christ. Christ is the blessed hope of the believer. And when he returns, he will be as radiant and as full of splendor and as full of beauty as he ever has been because he is the same yesterday and today and forever. And he is my hope. He is my inheritance that is imperishable. He is undefiled. He will not fade away. He is in heaven waiting for me and he is coming back to take me to be with himself forever. And I know this. Yes, because the Bible says it's true. It's been confirmed even to my own heart and to yours by the Spirit who has been given to us in the new birth. Friend, have you been born again? Have you tasted and seen the goodness of Christ? Are you waiting for him to come back? Friend, if you've not been born again, then go to the only one who can give you new birth and ask and seek and knock until you have breath no more. And if you have been born again, then blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray again. Amen. Father, we... <laughs> We're so grateful to you. We're so thankful for your mercy. We're so undeserving of your kindness. We ask, oh God, this day that you would work in our hearts in such a way that if that new birth is lacking, that you would grant it. Oh, that you would awaken sinners even today that they would, as Paul says to the church in Corinth, fall down and say, surely God is in this place. Oh, and oh, Father, if these precious souls here today have tasted indeed of the new birth, might you enrich their worship? Might you strengthen their stand upon the promises of Christ? Might you give them focus of their vision to see clearly the empty tomb of Jesus every day and might they be forward looking in all things and set their hope completely on the grace to be revealed in the coming of Christ we ask this for the praise of the glory of your grace and for the good of our own souls we ask it in Jesus name Amen, Amen.